is our first Sunday of 2019, which seems really late. Like, remember when 2019 was, we were going to like be flying around in spaceships and stuff? I, I don't know. Maybe I'm old, but man, it feels like, it, wow, 2019. Um, but it's going to be a great year. I'm really excited for this year. We're launching into this year. Um, by looking at a series that I'm actually very pumped about. It's an Old Testament series where we're going to look into the life of a man named Joseph. Um, We're going to be looking in Genesis chapter 37. If you have a Bible today, grab it and pull it out. You're going to need those this morning. If you didn't bring one, we have one in the pew rack in front of you. You can conveniently locate one of those. Genesis chapter 37 is on page 31 if you're using one of those Bibles. And uh, interestingly enough, Joseph is such a significant figure in the scriptures that his story occupies more space in the book of Genesis than any other single individual. And and that is really significant when you consider that he gets more ink space actually than Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, or even his own father Jacob. Some pretty heavy hitters in there. And Joseph's story is, is the biggest story. And it's not a boring story. It's not long and boring. It's long and, and intriguing. In fact, as, as we go through this series, you're going to find that Joseph's life is chocked full of a lot of drama. Daytime TV has nothing on Joseph. It's a story filled with arrogance and intrigue and suspense and betrayal and temptation and struggle and sadness and suffering and success like you've never seen before. This is a story that will find Joseph in a place as low as a prison and in a position as high as a palace. And again, we're spending eight weeks in Joseph's life and we're calling this series From Dreams to destiny. Because what I find in Joseph's life is something that I believe is true for every single one of us. I think it's true of my life and I think it's true of yours as well. Joseph was a man who had dreams. He had plans. He had ideas about who he was and what his life would look like. But what we find in Joseph's story is that God has other plans. God has a a greater purpose and a different idea for where Joseph's life will go. God has a destiny for Joseph's life, and it's a destiny that will take Joseph down paths he never would have walked down on his own, and he certainly would not have chosen for himself. In fact, at the very end of Joseph's story, after all the the ups and downs and twists and turns and, and ins and outs and unexpected, sometimes extremely difficult circumstances, Joseph stands up, this is kind of the climactic scene of the story. He stands in front of his brothers. This is Genesis chapter 50. Um, We're going to jump into the beginning of the story. This is a little sneak peek of the end. And he says this, standing in front of his brothers. He says, do not fear, for I am in the place of God. And that's that's just a little hint of destiny. That's just a little biblical definition of what destiny truly is. For, I, for am I in the place of God, he says? Am I not exactly where God wants me to be? Am I not exactly where God has led me? It's been a long road. It's not always seemed straight and narrow or even like God was in control, but he has been the whole time, and I am exactly where he has me to be. You see, friends, what the Bible says to you and me in such a very personal way is that he has a plan for your life. God has a plan for your life. 
He doesn't just save you and say, I'll see you in heaven someday, like good luck, do whatever you want. No, he has a plan for you. He wants to use you. He wants to work in you and through you. He wants to accomplish his will and purposes in and through your life. But often, from our worldly perspective, our lives don't feel this way. They feel off course. They feel uh, like they're sort of meandering or wandering off the path and we are so many times tempted to wonder, God, are you really there? Are you really in control? Are you really leading and guiding and accomplishing in and through me what you want to be? Because looking at my life right now, God, it sure doesn't seem like it. But listen to what Joseph says to his brothers next. He says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? In other words, yeah. Have I not fulfilled God's destiny? Has God not done his work in me? And then he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And friends, what we'll learn from Joseph is that on the path to God's destiny, we will encounter both evil and good. You see, the road to destiny is not just a road through good. It's not just easy going and smooth sailing. It's not all good on the road to destiny. There's some bad stuff on the way to destiny. There's some bad people on the way to destiny. You'll make some bad choices on the way to your destiny. In fact, the road on the way to your destiny might just involve suffering and pain and struggle that at the time you don't understand. It did for Joseph. That was his story, that was his road, but now I'm getting ahead of myself, so let's get back to the beginning of the story, Genesis chapter 37. We'll begin right in the middle of verse two where we're first introduced to our main character. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bildah and the sons of Zilpha, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them, about his brothers. Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, this sounds great. Tell us more. No, they didn't. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Well, we first meet Joseph here at the ripe young age of 17 years old, and we're told right out of the gate that something really important about him, that he was his father's favorite. And we're not sure, the text doesn't say, but 
this doesn't really seem to be a huge issue until Jacob gives Joseph this very famous robe. You may know it as the coat of many colors or the technicolor dream coat. The NIV says it's ornate. Some translations use the word rich. But the point is that this is an expensive coat. This is a nice piece of clothing. But it is not just a nice piece of clothing. It's actually something more. In the ancient world, even more significantly than in our world today, clothing was an expression of status, of value, of position. It marked children out as being above or more important than the others. And this robe was a very tangible sign of what the brothers had possibly suspected all along that Joseph was in fact their father's favorite. That he would be given position and privileges and status in the family that they would not be given. And so every time Joseph wears this robe, and he wears it a lot because it makes him feel special. Every time he wears it, it's a reminder to his brothers that they will never be loved by their father the way that Joseph is. Every time he wears this robe, and he wears it a lot, they die a little inside. And this beautiful, ornate robe becomes a very poisonous thing for this family. Verse four says, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Think about that verse for just a moment. Think about the pain and the struggle and the destruction of that one verse, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Well, before we get to the brothers, let's talk about Joseph for a minute. Let's ask this question. What effect is all this favored treatment having on Joseph? We see in verse two that he and his brothers are off tending to the flocks and Joseph comes home to his dad with a what? It says a bad report. He's got a bad report to dad about his brothers. Anyone here have, ever have a sibling narc you out for something you did? <laughs> this ever happened to anyone in here? Yeah, it, it doesn't really endear them to you, does it? It doesn't really build family ties and bonds when your siblings like rat you out to the parents. A number of years ago, my son Dax uh, was about six or seven. He was in trouble for something. And my wife was talking to him about this thing he'd done. Um, she was kind of sitting down. And he was in front of her and she was talking to him about the choices he was making and the consequence of his behavior and why he should have made a different choice and how we we're going to correct him to have a different choice in the future. And he was standing there looking at my wife and behind Dax, where he couldn't see her, but where my wife could clearly see her, um, was our daughter PJ, Dax's little sister. And at the time, she was about four years old. And as my wife was correcting my son, my four-year-old daughter was standing behind him, just mouthing the words to him, spank him, mom, spank him. Spank him, mom. And she wasn't really saying the words out loud. She just mouthed them very clearly. And she said it over and over again, spank him, mom, spank him. Spank him with, with a passion and vengeance and enthusiasm. Like, don't just kind of spank him, mom. Really spank him, mom. Let's get him. Let's tan his little hide, you know? I don't even think she was the, 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 the victim of his, of his bad move, but it's a solid little sister move to sell your, out, sell your brother like that. Well, well, Joseph is actually worse than that. He's worse than my daughter PJ. Commentators tell us that 
This Hebrew word for bad report is actually a word that means false report or lie or at least a misrepresentation of some kind. So Joseph is not just tattling on his brothers. He's making up stories about his brothers. He's exaggerating. He's embellishing to put his brothers in a bad light with dad. You see, without directly saying it, the author here is telling us that Joseph is not on a good path, that he is becoming slowly and surely through the favoritism of his father, a selfish and conceited person who is often loose with the truth. Then Joseph adds to this by revealing this pair of dreams. Now, if you have siblings, I'd like for you to consider for a moment doing what Joseph did. You call your siblings together and you say, family meeting, come on in, listen up. I've had this dream and I want to tell you about it. We're all binding sheaves together. And then suddenly in my dream, my sheaf stands up tall and your sheaves bow down to me. Isn't that cool? Let's gather around and talk about what this could possibly mean. In fact, let's practice by playing bow down sheaf. Anyone want to play? Now the writer makes their response to Joseph very clear. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of this dream and what he had said. You see, this isn't just little brothers annoying us. Why do we always have to watch him? He's always telling on us. He kind of bugs us. No, there is hatred in the heart of these brothers. Hatred is growing deep inside of their souls. And then Joseph puts the icing on the cake by having another dream. And you'd think by now Joseph would have learned that maybe, just maybe, openly sharing your dreams might not be the right call, but he doesn't learn. Instead, he gathers his entire family for dream number two. And he says, if you guys liked dream number one, dream number two is even better. Mom and dad get in on the action this time. And it's so bad Jacob is so off base, he's, he's so, so disconnected relationally from what he's saying that even his father rebukes him. Even his father who loves him dearly and is often blind to Joseph's weak spots and blind spots and, and behavior, even his father rebukes him. And I'll just say real quickly here, friends, um, spiritual maturity and relational maturity are never disconnected in the scriptures. It is impossible to be spiritually very mature and relationally immature. And so what the author is showing us here is that both relationally and spiritually in life, Joseph has a long, long way to go. Tim Keller says, all this favoritism has Joseph on the path of becoming a spoiled, selfish, insensitive, arrogant, shallow, and maybe even evil person. You see, the story begins, and unless God steps in and does something radical, Joseph will not on his own become the person God longs for him to be. He's not getting there by himself. And likewise for the brothers, all this favoritism and arrogance is doing something very sinister in their hearts as well. Three times we're told they hate Joseph. Hate is growing in their hearts for their own little brother. And then finally we're introduced to the word that is stoking and feeding and driving all of this hate and all of this negative emotion. It's found in verse 11. It says this, his brothers were jealous. 
His brothers were jealous of him. And friends, nothing leads to resentment and hatred and the destruction of community and family more than jealousy. You know what's interesting about jealousy or envy? It's one of the hardest sins to spot in yourself. It's one of the hardest sins to confess or admit to. I mean, think about it for a minute. Just scroll your mind for a second. Think back, how often have you heard someone in your life Admit to being jealous. How many times has someone in your life, even the people closest to you, even the people that love you and trust you and talk to you about everything, how many times in your life has someone said to you, I'm struggling with jealousy. I feel really envious. I feel really jealous of this person. Not often. Instead, we deny jealousy because jealousy is shameful. The same thing that causes us to be jealous prevents us from expressing our jealousy and that is Pride. You see, to confess jealousy feels so weak. It feels so vulnerable. It feels so petty. No one wants to admit to being jealous. We'll admit to being angry or frustrated or ticked off, but jealous, no way. That's for weak, wimpy people, and I could never be one of those. Here's how jealousy works. There's somebody in your life, and maybe you don't like them, And you really don't even know why. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But the truth is, if you dig around in your heart and you start to ask yourself some honest questions, what you'll discover is your feelings for them stem from the fact that to some degree or another, they are a reflection of something you are not that you wish you were. That's that's the root of jealousy. There's something you're not that you wish you were. They've got something that you don't have. They have somebody that you didn't get. They are moving in a direction you're not moving. They've worked not quite as hard as you, but have achieved more. And so jealousy takes root. And you're jealous of what he's accomplished, or you're jealous of the clothes she fits into, or you're jealous of how their kids behave, or the way people are drawn to them in a crowd, or the ease with which their marriage seems to work. You see, jealousy knows no boundaries. It can hit almost every relationship in almost any area. And because there's nothing worse than admitting we are jealous, we become masters of self-deception. But here's the truth about jealousy. Even though none of us want to admit it or like to admit it or have ever heard anyone else ever admit it, it is a universal thing that everyone struggles with. Mass confession time, and I'll actually ask you to raise your hands on this one. If you have ever in your life envied somebody's car or house or physique or marriage or children or grandchildren, if you have ever wished you had someone else's hair, if you've ever wished you had anyone else's hair, if you've ever envied somebody's salary, success, beauty, wardrobe, education, temperament, athletic ability, spiritual gifts, or even humility, go ahead right now and just free yourself. Raise your hand. Look around. Jealousy is a universal thing, and we're kind of having some fun with this, but jealousy is actually a very sinister and serious thing. The Bible says this, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but jealousy rots the bones. Think about that image for a minute. Jealousy just moves into the inside of your life and rots you from the inside out. Wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming. Those are powerful emotions. Those are destructive feelings when acted upon. 
Wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming. But who can stand before jealousy? They're nothing compared to the destructive power of jealousy in your life. You want to destroy your life and the life of others? Grab a hold of envy and let it take root in you, the Bible says. Chuck Swindoll says, jealousy, if allowed to grow and fester, leads to devastating consequences. And that is exactly what happens in this family. One day, Joseph's brothers are gone, off with the flocks, and Jacob sends Joseph out to check on them. Go and check on your brothers. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 18. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Friends, this is some deep, deep envy that has been festering for a really long time. And one question to ask here is, it says Joseph is at a distance, that he's a long way off. So how do they know it's him? Yeah, they can't see his face, but they recognize that robe. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Notice here, they don't say, here comes Joseph, or here comes our brother. They say, here comes that dreamer. And again, this is such brilliant writing because the author of this story is showing us something so very significant about jealousy. The author is saying through this story, when you envy someone, when jealousy starts to get its claws in you, you no longer think of them as a person, not as a human being. They're no longer someone's son or someone's daughter. You don't think of them any longer as a brother or a sister. Jealousy will reduce them down to the one who possesses what it is that you want. They're nothing more than the person who has what you wish you have. They're nothing more than the person who has what you envy. Here comes the one who has those dreams that we will never have. Here comes the one with that robe that we did not get. Here comes the one who has the affection of our Father that we have so longed for for so long and have never received. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Friends, this is a real important part of the story because Joseph's brothers have a seemingly legitimate complaint. They have not received the kind of love from their father that they should have received. They have not been affirmed and accepted and loved by their earthly dad in the way that God would want them to be. But their solution, their solution to this problem, this problem that they have with Jacob, this problem that they have with their father, they decide to take it out on Joseph and their solution is to destroy him. And friends, that's exactly what jealousy will do. That's exactly what it will say to you. If you cannot have what you so desperately want, then make sure no one else can have it either. Jealousy will drive us to do whatever we need to do to take that thing we can't have away from the other. And friends, this happens with us all the time. 
This happens in my life and this happens in your life all the time. And I know that most of us in here have not probably physically thrown someone, a sibling into a pit, although maybe we should do a mass confession on that. (laughs) Most of us have probably not done something this extreme, but we've put people in pits in other ways. We've intentionally decided to withhold compliments. We've written people off because of jealousy. We've been passive aggressive. We've bad mouthed people. We've gossiped or slandered them. We've insinuated some things about them. And we're good in this at church, right? Real subtly, so that people won't accuse us of being hateful or unspiritual, but the message is given off and it's given off oh so clearly. Do you find yourself just attracting gossip and slander? Attracting complaints and dissatisfaction. What about you is saying, it's okay to talk that way with me? Or maybe you found yourself saying something like this to a friend. I probably shouldn't say this. Or I'd only say this to you. Or I don't want to be mean, but I'm about to be. Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. I want to just explain this scene for a minute because sometimes I think we have the Sunday school version where Joseph's sort of lowered down into this little pit and he's in there going, guys, how come you're leaving me in here? Let me out. The Hebrew text is much more explicit. They ripped these clothes off him. He was probably stripped bare naked. He was most likely beaten and he was thrown in this pit and left for dead. This is a young man who is devastated, who's begging and pleading for his life if he's even conscious. There are tears, there are screams, there are, there are yells. This is a horrifically abusive scene. But let's back up. What's the first thing the brothers do when Joseph arrives? They take that blasted robe off his body because they are sick of looking at it. And they're sick of being reminded every single day of how their father loves him and not them. And friends, I want to pause right here for a minute and talk about this robe. Because all of us in here come from imperfect families. There are no perfect families in this place. There are no perfect families in this world. But some of us, maybe even most of us in this room, have some real deep hurts from our families. Some of you are in here this morning and here's the truth about you. You never got to wear the robe. Some of you never received the kind of affirmation and love from your parents that your heart longed for and that you so desperately desired. Maybe you were in a contest with a real high achiever in your family and no matter what you did, you could not study hard enough or run fast enough or jump high enough. Maybe you were in a family with a real attractive sibling and you always felt like you were the unnoticed one. Or maybe for reasons that you still can't wrap your mind around and don't understand, you were just never given the robe. You were never told how lovely and beautiful and wonderful you are by your mom and dad. Let me just say a few things to you this morning, if that's you. A couple things I believe God wants you to hear. First, 
it's okay to uncover and acknowledge that hurt. God wants you to. He's asking you to. Do not just deny it or bury it or let, let it callous over and make your heart hard. Put that hurt and pain into the light, lay it on the altar so that God can help you deal with it. It's hard. That's vulnerable stuff. Those feelings are real personal, but God says, let's talk about it. Let's deal with it. Bring it out. We can, we can do some healing work here. If it's possible for you, and maybe it's not, maybe the circumstances wouldn't be safe or right or appropriate, or maybe the people concerned have passed away, but if it's possible for you, you may want to approach the members of your family, your parents or your siblings, and just acknowledge the pain that you feel. Just put it out there. Just have a hard, honest conversation. Maybe they need the chance to apologize. Maybe they've wanted to apologize. Maybe that would be the opportunity for you to just start over. Maybe things look totally different to them. They had a different experience and there's some things that you need to hear from them. You need to hear how they saw things and there can be some healing from that. You know, in Joseph's family, this kind of reconciliation does actually happen. As bad as it was, as horrible as this scene is, Reconciliation in Joseph's life, ha Joseph's life happens. Guess when, though? 20 years later. Don't wait 20 years. Don't wait 20 years. And even if those kind of, kind of conversations aren't possible for you, at least acknowledge your hurt to yourself and to your God and to a trusted friend. The second thing you need to do if you never wore the robe, and maybe all of us need to do this one, is just to renounce envious action. Some of us in this room need to just make a declaration. Even though I feel envy, I will not give in to the temptation to gossip or backbite or to tear down other people to try and cover up the hurt and pain that I feel. Even though it's my brother, even though it's my sister, even though it's my cousin. And here's the third thing. If you never wore the robe... If you were never given that sort of affirmation from your parents, find people and cultivate, cultivate friendships that will offer you the kind of love and acceptance and reassurance and affirmation that your heart deserves and needs. Find people to fill that role in your life because there are people that want to and there are people in this church that will. And just be honest. I need someone to build me up, to encourage me, to remind me how lovely and beautiful I truly am. There are people in this place that would love to do that for you. And as part of that, learn to hear these words from God. Learn to hear those words from your heavenly father. This is John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on you, that you are now called a child of God because that is who you are. Put that verse on your mirror, memorize it, stencil it to your brain, hold on to that truth because you have a Father that loves you. Learn how to experience him and know him and feel truly that your Father loves you, that he puts his robe on you that he has a robe, that even though you didn't get a robe when you were a kid, he's got a robe and he wants to put it on you now and every single day. Because here's the truth, when you begin to understand how deep the Father's love is for you, how vast it is beyond all measure, as the wonderful hymn writer says, envy will have far less control of your life. God's love will drown out worldly envy every single time. 
Do you need a robe today? Well, maybe not. Maybe that's not your issue. Maybe you're here and you wore the robe. Maybe you were Joseph. You were in Joseph's position. And you've always just been kind of the favorite. The favorite of your parents. Maybe just the favorite in life. Maybe everywhere you go, people just seem to love you and accept you. You see, there's danger in that too, friends. And maybe as time has gone on, even though it seemed great at first, you're starting to realize what a trap that is. What a trap that robe can be. Maybe now you feel like you always have to have the robe. And maybe you always need the attention and the affirmation. Maybe if you don't get it, you don't feel special and you forget who you are. Maybe you become insensitive. Maybe the robe has, made, has blinded you to how your status and power and popularity affects the people around you. And perhaps underneath all of that stuff is this fear that if you lose this robe, if you lose this favored position, then you, if you lose the the affirmation and the acceptance of people, then you don't know who you'll be. Who am I without that robe? You know, friends, I don't think it was any accident that Joseph spent years as a slave and as a prisoner before he was ready to be used by God in a powerful and prominent position again. See, Joseph has to go and learn what life is like without the robe. He had to learn that God's love and faithfulness was enough and that he did not need the praises and affirmations of others in order to be someone of value. Friends, if this is you, put yourself in places where you're not always the center of attention, where you're not the one that holds the power or has the last word, Seek out and find places where you can serve behind the scenes and not be noticed by anyone. And just just let God notice you and let it be good enough. And like I said, this is going to happen for Joseph. He's going to experience this very thing. And God is going to use this in his life to change and transform him in mighty ways. But today, as the first scene of his life finishes up, that's not going to quite happen. Today's story will not end on a high note. There will not be a happily ever after red ribbon around this story. Joseph's brothers finish off this opening scene by selling him into slavery. At least they didn't kill him. They take the robe, the one they've ripped off of his body, and they dip it into the blood of a goat. And then they go home to tell their father that his beloved son is dead. Then Jacob tore his clothes put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. You see, these boys, what do they want? What do their hearts really want? The love and acceptance of their father But they've done all this and they haven't won their father's love at all. They've only lost their brother. See, what they really wanted was their father's affection, his attention, for his eyes to light up for them the way his eyes always lit up for Joseph. But now all they have is pain and mourning and regret because, friends, that's what envy produces. It does not fix. It does not heal. It will only destroy. Some of you in this room 
Listen to me. You are holding on to jealousy and envy. You've been holding on to it for a long time. And there's this sense that you're getting even or that you're protecting yourself or that there's some sort of justice in this jealousy that you're holding. And I'm telling you, it will only destroy you and the people around you. God is calling you today to let it go. And as you read this first chapter, this opening scene in Joseph's life, it doesn't go so well. It's like not the start of a, you know, wonderful hero story or anything. Uh, but there's a question that emerges, and the author wants you to ask it. If Joseph is a good guy, if God's at work in his life, then why does God allow this to happen? If, if he's at work in the midst of this family, where is God in the midst of all of this? Because if, look carefully. There's no mention of God anywhere in here. God never speaks. He's never spoken of. He does not explicitly do anything in this entire chapter. And by the way, you'll be hard-pressed to find another chapter in the entire book of Genesis where God is not present in some way. And again, the Bible is so good, friends. The artistry and the majesty of this story. Because on the surface, God seems to be utterly and completely absent. But right in the middle of this story, there's a whole set of circumstances or coincidences in verses 14 through 17. We jumped over them. I'm going to go back. Joseph is sent out by his dad to find his brothers, and he's looking for his brothers. Hundreds and hundreds of square miles in the wilderness. I mean, this is not like, you know, go find him in the yard. Hundreds and hundreds of square miles. And as he's looking for his brothers, they're not where he thought they would be, but he just happens to find a man wandering around in a field. And this guy just happens to have run into Joseph's brothers. And he just happens to have overheard them saying where they were going next. Hmm, what a coincidence, or maybe not. And the point the author is reminding of is this. Even when it does not seem like God is present or in control, he always is. Some of you need to hear that today. Even when it does not seem that God is in control or even present, even when it seems like God does not even care, he always cares. He's always there. He is always with you even when it doesn't seem like he is. Even when things in your life have gone off the rails, even when it feels like you've been thrown into a pit and left for dead and forgotten, God is always at work accomplishing his plans and leading us towards his destiny for our lives, even if that destiny looks a lot different than the destiny we would have chosen for ourselves. That's what this story teaches us. And then, again, there's this very last verse. And, again, the wonderful writing in the scriptures. It's just unparalleled. The story ends... Joseph is, is not murdered. He's sent off into slavery. His murder is staged by the brothers. The father weeps and goes into deep mourning. And it seems like this whole thing is going to end like on such a sour note. And then the scene wraps up with this one last statement that the author throws in. Listen to it. Meanwhile, I love that. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Like, huh, maybe God's doing something here that no one could have ever anticipated. I bet he is. But I guess the point is this, friends. Maybe you need to be reminded of that this morning. 
Maybe in your life, you need to be reminded that we serve a God who can take the deepest pit and the most torturous cross and the darkest, deepest grave and use even those places for his plans and purposes and your good. So I don't know, I, don't, I have no idea what pits you're facing this year. I, I have no idea what trials and struggles you personally are in the midst of. But the scriptures invite us to come to the table to remember that we are not in those moments alone. That we are part of a family, a church family that wants to walk with us and that we have a God who never tires and is always at work to accomplish his good plans in us and through us even when, or maybe even especially when life takes us to the pit. Got any pits today? Some of you are just in some shallow pits. You argued with your spouse on the way to church. Now you're feeling bad. You'll make up on the way home. Go ahead and hold hands right now. We'll watch and see who it is. <laughs> some of you are having trouble with your kids. Some of you are struggling in a marriage. Some of you got some issues at work. Some of you got some bigger pits. Some of you got cancer or Alzheimer's or a parent who's in hospice or a son or a daughter who's off the rails and you don't even know where they're at. Some of you are in some pretty big pits today and you wonder, where are you, God? Where are you at in the midst of this? How could you possibly work this for your glory and for my good? And God says, read this story. Read the story of Joseph because I am always there and I am always working and don't you forget it. And we come to these tables to remind ourselves that God's even at work in the midst of the darkest, deepest place in this life that we'll ever face and that's the grave. He's even at work in the midst of death, in the midst of the thing that feels so final and so awful and so evil and so not right. He's even at work there, and he wins. He ultimately wins. He wins the battle. Even the grave could not hold him. And so this morning, I invite you to come to these tables and bring your struggles, bring your pit, and maybe the places where you're struggling with envy. Maybe the places where you're struggling with jealousy. Maybe there's a relationship that you've been holding out from God and the scriptures say, hey, before you come to the altar, if you got something against your brother or sister or aunt or uncle or father or mother or cousin or coworker, get that right. Have a heart that reflects the kind of grace that I've offered you and you come to this table and you remember how gracious and big our God is. This morning, you're invited to this table to remember the victorious power of our God and he invites you not just to come as a, as a religious exercise but to come and bring all your junk, all your stuff to him because that is where God does his best work in the midst of your pits, in the midst of your junk, in the midst of your life's tragedies. That's where you'll find him. That's where he'll change you and shape you. That's where he'll take you not to your destiny but to his destiny for you. Amen? I'm gonna pray and then when you're ready, you can just come to the table, receive the bread and the cup and we'll close in some worship. Father, this morning, thank you for this man and for this story. I pray specifically, Lord, for people in this room who are struggling with something big and it's so much easier to talk about trusting you in the midst of those moments than it is to actually do it and I know that. So I, I state that out loud and I ask God that you by your spirit would move in close to people who need to be reminded of your presence and your power and your goodness today. Remind them that there's freedom to question you 
and be frustrated with you and to be angry with you and to hurt and to lament and mourn in front of you, Lord, but remind them that you will never let go. And if there are places, God, in this church where there's unresolved envy and jealousy and bitterness, especially amidst families, God, may your Holy Spirit break into those moments. May your transforming mercy and grace bring healing and restoration and freedom. And would you give us, as your people, as your dearly loved children, the humility to be the ones who would offer the olive branch. God, I'm praying that whoever needs to hear that message today, that your Holy Spirit would embed that in them. So now, Lord, we come to this table to declare you, your goodness, your grace, your mercy, and your ultimate victory, not just over sin and death, but over our sin and death and over our lives. So have your way, Lord. Have your way with us. We thank you and love you. We pray all this in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. One last thing here before we go. I just want to make sure that we're all, as we get into this series, I want to make sure we're all on the same page on this. In this story, the beginning of Genesis, God creates the world. It's good, it's great, it's perfect. Shalom, peace, right? Humans blow it, we fall, we bring sin and destruction and devastation in the world. Then God is now in his like rebuilding process. He's in the redemptive part of history and he decides how I'm gonna sort of make things right again is through people, through a specific group of people, through a family. And it's this group of people that we often refer to as the heroes of the faith, these Old Testament heroes. And as we read about them and their lives, what we discover is this. They ain't heroes. In fact, they're more broken and messed up and dysfunctional than you are. You wanna feel good about your life, read Genesis and read about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then Joseph, he's part of that. And he's actually the best of the lot, to be honest. But there's this temptation that we'll have in this series to approach it this way. Ooh, we're gonna, we're gonna study Joseph so that I can try to be more like Joseph so that I can be a Christian. So I can try real hard to live my life the way Joseph lived so that God will love me more. And friends, that is not the message of Joseph. That is not the message of the scriptures. That is not the gospel. That is not the good news. The good news is this. In spite of the fact that Joseph is a broken, messed up, depraved person, God inserts himself into Joseph's life to accomplish his plans and purposes in spite of Joseph. Now, does Joseph do some things along the way worth emulating? Absolutely. But the one at work in Joseph's life is God. It's grace. It's the gospel. It's God at work. It's not Joseph doing something right. And so the message of this series is, no matter where you are at in life, no matter what you're facing, no matter who you are right now, God is at work. He wants to be at work in you and through you and with you to accomplish his purposes. And the message isn't try harder. The message is surrender more. Allow God to take control more. Follow his lead more fully, just the way Joseph did. And so as you go today, remember that's the message. That's the message of this entire series, allowing God to do more work in us, allowing God to direct our paths, not taking control on our, on our own. And if this morning you need help with that or if you want to talk about any of the things we talked about today, there's going to be prayer in the back. One of the ways you live into humility, one of the ways you crush the power of envy and jealousy in your life is through prayer and specifically allowing others to pray for you. There's just something about that that's so powerful. So if you need prayer this morning for a relationship that's going through that or for a struggle that you're in or just for anything at all, people in the back would love to pray for you. With that, I know you're anxious to get home to football games, but it, 
let me tell you the scores real quick. No, I'm just kidding. No, but this was better. This was better, right? And the series is going to be good. It's going to be a great series. So come back next week. We're going to continue on. Go with God. Love you, church. Have a great week.